0: Well, let's turn together to 1 Corinthians 13, and we're going to talk about what our children's choirs just sang about. This may be the most well-known Bible passage in our day, in part because it's read at more weddings than anything else. Um, if you're watching a movie and there's a wedding scene, take the over, it's going to be 1 Corinthians 13. And take the over that the minister is going to be kind of goofy, because for whatever reason they just always pick on us in those movies. That's my own issue coming out, that's not in the... So the title of this message is, How to Love When You Disagree. How to love when you disagree. Now before we read this, a quick disclaimer, 1 Corinthians 13 is not primarily uh, this list of things that you're supposed to do. It's not primarily, Wes, you need to love more and be more patient and be more kind. Yes, it calls us to something greater and and more incredible, but more than anything, this is a picture, it's a promise of how Jesus loves us. Think about this, Jesus of Nazareth, the only person who ever lived his whole life in perfect love, which is why you can read through 1 Corinthians 13 and change out the word love with the name Jesus. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus bears all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Jesus never fails. It's a picture of how God first loved us in and through Jesus. And the more we let these words and really the words of scripture get into our minds and inside of our hearts, the more they can shape us into people marked by this love, by patience and kindness and freedom from arrogance, and increasingly able to love even those with whom we sharply disagree. So here's what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13. We'll start in verse 4. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, this is quite fascinating, and I heard about this from a pastor in Atlanta. Recently, a new manuscript was discovered, a version of 1 Corinthians 13, and it bears a striking resemblance to the text that we just read. Except for this one variant, there's one addition to the text that apparently didn't show up in uh, the other earliest ancient manuscripts. Are you interested in this as much as I am? Okay, so here's this newly discovered version of 1 Corinthians 13. Here's how it reads, love is patient and kind, love does not envy or boast, it is not arrogant or rude, it does not insist on its own way, it is not irritable or resentful. All of that is identical to what we just read, but are you ready for the newly discovered part? except when it comes to the person you disagree with. (laughs) Isn't that fascinating? And the timing of it all, that they would discover this and unearth this right in the midst of an election season. (laughs) Love is patient, love is kind, except when that person has crazy political views. Now, political and election seasons can be somewhat difficult times in the life of a church and that is certainly true for us believe it or not as a family of churches now six congregations in four different parts of our city with people who live all over dallas and this may be harder for you to appreciate based on who you see sitting right around you in this room right now but as a church we are more diverse ethnically racially culturally socioeconomically, and yes politically than you might have assumed If you were to put all of us together in one room, you'd be a little surprised about the ideas and the conversations and the views that would come out of it. And here's the thing. When the church can demonstrate to the world that we can overcome all these differences and different backgrounds and still be united around our singular commitment to Jesus and seeking to live the way he lived and love the way he loved, when we can demonstrate that kind of unity even in our differences, do you know what it does? it makes people curious. It makes people go, huh, like what is it about those people? That's weird, how do they do that? In a cultural moment when there is so much huddling up around the people who have the same background and the same views and the same politics, and we surround ourselves with this echo chamber that reinforces our shared views, there is something oddly curious Oddly attractive about a community that's united in Jesus in a way that cuts across so many other differences and divides. I've shared this before, that if we have Jesus in common, then what we have in common is far greater than anything that could ever threaten to divide. Well, funny story, it's not actually funny, but it's true. I remember sharing that in a sermon uh, one Sunday, and someone wrote to me later that afternoon and said, respectfully pastor but I disagree and this person went on to say I don't have anything in common with anyone who votes for that godless dot 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 and I'm just gonna let leave the rest for your imagination so I know this strikes a chord for some of you but here's the thing and this is really the heart of what we're looking at today God loved you and moved toward you and he sent his son to die for you, even though you had virtually nothing in common with him. He disagreed with just about everything in your life because, and this is like one of our core reformed convictions, total depravity, there is not a part of your life or my life that hasn't been wrecked and warped by sin. It gets into everything. And yet a God who is perfectly holy and perfectly loving came down to rescue and redeem and love those who are completely lost in sin. God says, I want you now to do the same. Just as I have loved you, now I want you to love those, even those you have nothing in common with. Doesn't mean we have to agree on everything. Jesus did not call us to agree with one another. He called us to love one another. We can have deeply held disagreements, just like we see in the early New Testament church. And yet we can come together as this family, as brothers and sisters linking arms in Christ in a way that I believe our neighbors, our city, and our country needs to see on full display from followers of Jesus. Now, having said that, and before you start asking, well, what about... What about standing on this issue? Or what about standing on, on taking a stance on that issue? Look at what Paul says in verse 6. Is it getting hot in here or is it just me right now? <laughs> Look at what Paul says in verse 6. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. I want to talk about rejoicing with the truth. So first of all, the verb, to rejoice with. This is a verb that's made up of two Greek words. The word charis for joy And soon, which means with, together with, alongside, to rejoice with and alongside the truth. So notice that Paul, the Apostle Paul, does not say here, he doesn't say, let's rejoice over the truth. Like, I'm going to stand on top of this truth so that people know if they disagree with me, they are wrong. They are inferior. They are beneath me. Over would imply, like, I'm standing on a higher ground of the truth, which means I'm above other people. But neither does Paul say that love rejoices under the truth or beneath the truth, like, as if we're hiding under it, which honestly can be somewhat tempting. Like, I know what I know what is true. I know that it, there is such a thing as right and wrong when it comes to certain issues, but I'm kind of going to hide underneath it and just keep my mouth shut and hunker down and not ruffle any feathers. I don't, I'm not really gonna stand on anything because I don't want anyone to not like me or disagree with me or label me a bigot, because I stand with a certain truth claim. No, not above, not under, with the truth, alongside the truth. Love doesn't mean we just say, look, you got your truth, I got my truth, everybody got their own truth. So let's just all get along and not judge each other or make any claims about what's right or just, or true. No, we rejoice with what is true. Besides, the bigger problem with that line of reasoning, you know, you've got your truth, I've got mine, and there's no such thing as any one absolute truth. The problem with that claim is it's actually a truth claim. Basically what you're saying is that the only absolute truth is that there is no absolute truth. Does that make sense? And on this Reformation Sunday, which if you didn't know that today's Reformation Sunday, today's Reformation Sunday, everybody. <laughs> uh, technically, actually, Reformation Sunday is October 31st, I believe. Uh, not because Martin Luther loved you know candy corn and costumes, but I'll tell you why in just a moment. But if you're new to this church or you're new to Christianity, the Reformation was a pivotal moment in the history of the church 500 years ago when a guy named Martin Luther posted his 95 theses to the Wittenberg door on October 31st. And it really sparked a movement to reform and purify the church. And if you were to look this up on your phone, I don't encourage you to do that right now, but you would find all kinds of memes out there. Uh, This is one of my favorites. We may have this. Okay, reformed humor is just, it's not funny. So you've got you know Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, I think Zwingli, maybe, Henry VIII. We can take that down. It's a little bit distracting. But one of the foundational convictions of this movement of the Reformation, which is part of our story, this is part of our legacy as a church, is this conviction that the Bible, the Bible, this is the first and final authority for what is true. If we want to know what is true, we have it in this book. We don't get to make up truth. It's not your truth and my truth or their truth and, you know, their truth. No. Love means we rejoice with the truth that God has given to us in these pages of Scripture. Even when it's hard. Even when it puts us at odds with the culture around us. Even when we don't like what it says. With the truth. Not over, not under. Rejoice with the truth. Now, most of all, you want to know what that means? If love means rejoicing with the truth, it means we're rejoicing with Jesus, the one who said, I am the way and the truth and the life. You know where truth is? Look to Jesus. Look at how he lived, at what he said, how he loved people. Our search for truth will always lead us closer and nearer to Jesus and to rejoice with him the one who loved us even though he had nothing in common with us he was perfect holy and he loved those who were unholy and scarred by sin if you think about it Jesus loved those who disagreed with him about the most important things he ever said they didn't think he was God and yet he loved them to the end and if there's ever been a time when this is needed, it is, it's is—it's right now. What's happening in our culture, can we all agree that our country could use a little more 1 Corinthians agape love right now? I mean, it's discouraging. And I, I know Twitter is all over the news and Elon closed the deal this week, but I open up Twitter and on my feed, it is filled with some of the most judgmental, condescending snarky trolling even among christians right it used to be that we could just disagree about something like with somebody that was on the opposite side of a political issue we disagreed we talked about it we viewed things differently and then we could go have dinner together and have a great conversation now it's like if we disagree with somebody it's as if their whole being is called into question we don't just disagree we vilify and it's tearing us apart I'm right. You're wrong. In fact, you're more than wrong. You're evil, and there is nothing worth worth listening to in your perspective. That's That's what's happening. In fact, I shared this with some of you a while back, how a friend of mine is a pastor. He saw this in his church, and so he asked them one season of Lent, the season leading up to Easter, he said, what if instead of giving up desserts and chocolates and french fries, you were to give up negative social media This was his challenge for the 40 days of Lent. What if you were to only post gracious and kind things, especially anything having to do with politics? So if you read some news article or saw some video that was blown up on social media, either you refrain from saying anything at all, anything negative, or you post something like, well, I have to admit that was a good point, or I appreciate the way that was written. In other words, his challenge was to praise something that was on the other side of an issue Than where you normally stand, to find something commendable. Okay, it doesn't count. Didn't count if you said something kind of snarky and backhanded and passive aggressive, like, wow, I really respect the consistency of your Marxist worldview. (laughs) Okay, that doesn't count. It's not the kind of love we're talking about here. What if, in the midst of this toxic, negative news cycle culture, there were these little pockets? Of Jesus' followers who were graciously civil. They were engaged in thoughtful arguments, well read, intellectually credible, biblically faithful, rejoicing with the truth, but they were oddly kind with those with whom they disagreed. I can't help but wonder what kind of healing might grow out of that. And here's why this is so important, and you know this arguments don't change people. Arguments rarely, if ever, change people. And just full disclosure here, I'm I'm a political science major. I am fascinated with politics. I love watching political debates. And I know for some of you, like that is a circle of hell that you would just rather avoid in life. But I, I mean, I, I've watched so many debates, I love it, and I'm still waiting for the political debate where there are these two candidates running for senator or governor or whatever, and they're on either sides of the stage, And one candidate makes his argument and he's got 60 seconds and then they turn to the other candidate and the other candidate says, wow, I, you know, I've never really thought of it that way. In fact, I think, I think you're right. You know, in fact, I'm changing my position here. I've changed my mind. Said no politician ever. Arguments don't change people. When Jesus came to earth declaring that he was going to make he was he was going to turn God's enemies into his friends. He didn't do it by waving his finger at people or by preaching at them. He doesn't raise his voice and shout. He didn't do it by fear or shame. Mostly, he let the power of love do the talking for him. And for 2000 years, this generous, sacrificial love has been the lifeblood of this movement launched by Jesus. Going back even to the fourth century, when an emperor named Julian the Apostate, not that a great name? We don't name our political leaders like that anymore. Julian the Apostate was the emperor, and Emperor Julian was not a Christian, but he was so overwhelmed, he was so baffled by the sacrificial love of the early church that he wrote to one of the pagan priests in his empire, and here's what he said. Nothing has contributed to the progress of the superstition of these Christians as their charity, their love to strangers. These impious Galileans provide not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. And Julian would go on to commend his pagan priests, and I want you to see this. He demanded that they then create hostels for immigrants and foundations for the poor because the Christians have by such means won their present dominance. Okay, that's a non-Christian political leader writing about the church. He's saying, folks, we got to step up. This odd band of religious people are serving the poor in our cities and people are starting to notice and they're drawn to this movement. So we better start doing what they're doing. The one thing the world saw that was so different than anything else, anyone else, was the fact that these Christians were loving, sacrificially loving even to those they had nothing in common with. What is it about these people, these impious Galileans? They loved people who disagreed with them like no one had ever loved people who disagreed with them before. Every other religion in the ancient world, it was based on some kind of affinity. Like we have something in common or the region you lived in or were born in, or the trade that you went into, or the tribe into which your family was born. Judaism had all of these cultural customs. Then you had different philosophies, but those were mostly for the well-educated and elite. But then this Jesus movement comes along, and they invited everyone in. Slaves and nobles, men and women, the educated and the illiterate different ethnicities, people from cities and people from the countryside, Jew and Gentile, people with deeply divergent views, zealot and tax collector, people with the most divergent political views you could imagine. No one had ever seen anything like this. Which kind of leads to the question, can that still happen today? How can we, as Jesus' followers, love people without compromising or watering down our deepest, deeply held convictions, rejoicing with the truth, but how can we transcend the political divisiveness in our day and love even those with whom we deeply disagree? How can we love our enemies or even just the people who vote for the other party And lead the way in our nation as those who would not just tolerate the people with whom we disagree, but genuinely love them and care for them and seek their best. How can we be healing agents, a church of salt and light, a city on a hill in these United States of America right now? Here's the answer. Before love is something you do, it has to be someone you've met. Before love is something you do, before you can love those you disagree with or love your enemies, it has to be someone you've met. And when you realize Jesus moved towards you and loved you, even when you were his enemy, and when you see that and realize that, it begins to free you to do the same. When you realize it and his love becomes something real inside of you, you begin to want to extend that love to others. Before love is something you do, it has to be someone you've met. It's about encountering Jesus. So last thing, and then we'll pray. As some of you know, the Greeks had all these different words for love, what we talk about when we talk about love. In our English language, we're stuck with just this one word, love, so that my daughter loves Nutella the same way she loves me. In fact, she told me this week she loves Nutella more than she loves me. But for the Greeks, they had these different words. So first there was philia, philia, which was friendship love. You could call this the the if kind of love. If you're nice to me, if we have shared interests, if we share the same views, if we both cheer for the cowboys, then I'll love you. Then there was eros love, erotic love, romantic love. You could call eros the because kind of love because you're beautiful, because you're smart, because I like you, because you love me, I will love you back. Then there was agape, and you could almost call this the in spite of kind of love, in spite of how you've hurt me, in spite of your flaws, in spite of how we disagree, I choose to love you no matter what. And isn't this exactly how God loves us? In Jesus, God chose to be born into this world to live a perfect life, to die a painful death on that Roman cross in spite of our sin, in spite of our betrayal, in spite of our turning away. Jesus loved us all the way to the cross. And there is nothing we could ever do to earn or unearn that agape love, God's agape love for us. It's a gift. And, folks, this is why we, re- we exist as a church, to receive this love and to keep on receiving it so that we can then extend his love into the world. And so Jesus, we pray, we ask that you would continue to fill us more and more, that love would abound in this place and in our lives. And we pray that what you did 2,000 years ago on the cross, and in your love for all people, that it would pervade and it would extend through us into a city and a country and a world that is so desperate to know your love, God. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.